0: I'm Johnny Bravo. Today you're going under the musical influence of today's guest, Chris Key, on Under the Influence with DJ Johnny Bravo. So I brought on Chris because Chris is always commenting on every post that I make on Instagram or Facebook that has to do with any kind of vinyl or any kind of music. And the other reason is because, and we'll probably get into this later, I'm sure, or maybe all through the podcast, he loves, loves, loves Van Halen. Chris, tell me a little bit about your musical self.
1: Well, uh, John, thanks for having me. Music for me probably goes back as far as I can remember. My dad is really the the biggest influence as far as music goes, not just necessarily the, the type of music, but just the love of music. My dad was, the spectrum of music that, that he's listened to from the time, basically, I can remember until now, it's just covered, like, every genre. I got a little bit of everything growing up. I've joked with people in the past. We grew up kind of of great means, so to speak, I guess. But uh, the stereo... that my dad acquired probably in the late 70s probably was the most expensive thing that we owned. (laughs) Ironically, he still has everything that he had back then, the same Pioneer receiver and speakers and everything. He loved to play music for everybody growing up. Probably wouldn't have liked music, certain types of music as much had he not played it so much, like just for instance, like he he liked Barry Manilow, which you know Barry Seventies would turn around and play some heavier stuff, you know Rolling Stones or you know something like that. Just a very wide range of, of music that, that he listened to. He he basically liked anything like with good harmonies and things like that. A lot of my memories really all tie back to my dad and I guess high fidelity system that he he built back in the day. Of course, everything was hands off when we were kids. That was like you didn't go near the stereo. You had to basically wait for dad to put a record on and attach. For or something and you know play it the one good thing about my dad is he always liked to crank it up he wasn't very conservative with the volume he if it was a good song with a good beat he'd let everybody including the neighbors to listen that's kind of where it all ties back
0: for me most people don't realize nowadays because we're in such a throwaway culture but back in the day when your parents would buy something it would have to last and they would uh, especially if you were of little means like both of us probably were i remember you know mine had an a track had a, a record player on it and the radio and i would just remember putting the cans on listening to that uh, stereo, 8-track tapes, records. I mean, we didn't have very many. Probably had like three or four of each, and that was about it. And I know that you still have a lot of your uh, equipment that you've acquired over the years and a lot of your music that you've acquired over the years that you've kept and probably still in the, if it wasn't in pristine condition when you bought it, it's probably still in the same condition now, but you might have fixed most of it. We didn't live in that throwaway culture. We bought something because we wanted it and we wanted to keep it, and we knew we were going to use it for something. Do you have any of those Things like equipment-wise or vinyl-wise that you have kept over all the years because of those things with your dad?
1: Yeah, I, there's very little that I don't still own from all the way from my childhood up. I still have the boom box. I had a, that, he bought me a Pioneer boom box for Christmas. The actual first stereo I got, which I'm sure a lot of kids got, you know, when we were growing up, was like an all-in-one. It uh, had a turntable on the top, and then it had the cassette deck built into the front. You know, it had AM/FM built in, and that I got probably probably when I was about eight or so. It was it was a gigantic box that Christmas. Of course, my brother and I used to always get up early in the morning. You know, go peek. You know, we have seen this huge box in the living room, no name on it, so you know we didn't know what it was or who it was for. You know, of course that was the last thing we got to open, and then we both go to dive in for it. My dad's like, no, that's just for Chris, and my, my brother kind of looked like, wow, really? (laughs) But uh, that was my first taste of music, and that was also the first year. uh, This was when Santa Claus messed up because I had opened up my very first album, which was uh, No Control by Eddie Money. I was a huge Eddie Money fan because this was back when MTV first came out. I would literally stand at my door before the bus every morning waiting for, like, the Shakin' video. The Shakin', my favorite song probably of the early 80s. I was just infatuated with it. So I got that album for Christmas. My mom and dad looked at each other when I opened up the album first and they were like, well, man, that's a Kind of a shame you don't have anything to play that on, you know. And I think they thought uh, maybe we should have held that to the side and let him open up the, the stereo first. And then, of course, once I got the stereo open, I was like, all right, I can play this record my own stereo now. So that's great. Uh, my dad still has that at his house. It was a very special piece of equipment back when I was a kid, but it was such a low fidelity type thing that I didn't really take it with me when I moved out and got married. Yeah, every 45, every album, every cassette I still have. My wife thinks, of course, I'm crazy. I think probably a lot lot of spouses probably think this way about our ability to hang on to old media and stuff like that but I used to of course tape off a Q94 and of course other stations like Echo 102 and stuff like that back in the day and of course my brother and I used to try to pull in stations from like the beach because they always seem to have really cool stations down that way and I still have all those cassettes that the old cheap Cassettes like they used to get from Seldon's or maybe, uh, the skates in one of those stores, EC Murphy's or something where you could get like a three pack of Sertrons for like $1. fifty. I would just tape stuff off the, the radio like we all did as kids because, you know, we couldn't afford to buy, but so many, you know, records or 45s or anything. Yeah, I have every piece of media that I've ever owned. Uh, I still have the only thing that I'm really, really bummed out about. And it's just because when you get married, you move out of your home and then we lived in our first house for about seven years and then I moved. To the house that I'm currently at, and a lot of stuff got put in the shed. Uh, I had all my cassette singles from, like, back basically when I was in high school all the way through, like, the early 90s when cassette singles were really popular. Some of those got, like, the mice got in them and chewed a little bit. Even though they're just cassette singles, they're still kind of cool, and they kind of Like, every time I go out there, I'll look in some of the song titles, like, man, I haven't heard some of these songs in forever, you know, like just some of the songs from the early 90s. It's almost like we haven't had that early pop 90s renaissance yet. Kind of went, now everything, they're playing, like, grunge and stuff like that from, like, you know, that era, but uh, there's certain aspects of the early 90s that seem to get skipped over a little bit, but it is kind of cool to go back and look at that old media, but, yeah, I still own everything that I've ever
0: owned as far as, like, Records, tapes, and cassettes. People, you know, nowadays don't realize the chore that it was for us to carry music around. You talk about a boombox. I was recently watching. I want my MTV. It was a documentary on MTV, and they were showing Run DMC coming out with their boombox, and that was the way we used to carry music around before, you know, we got the uh, Walkman. And ca- ca- singles and cassettes were a big way for us to carry music around with us and most people don't realize and then the other thing that you talked about too when you didn't have a lot of money you did record off the radio because it was like your mom wasn't giving you you know 49 cents or 99 cents or a buck 49 to go get that single or, or 45 or whatever it was and the records were probably like 6.99 you know 5.99 7.99 so we didn't get that at all really maybe we had like three or four records and that was probably like the whole family you know, enjoy those records. So to be able to keep that media, it's also a reminder that you could take that stuff with you. And now it's probably all on your phone, so you don't really need it, but it's at the same time, it's still just whatever it is having that single, having that 45, having that vinyl in your hand, putting it on the physical stereo or going to an actual store and actually looking for it is just reminds you of your childhood and, and all those things that you could actually take the music out of the house with you. I mean, that was like a big thing back in the day, too.
1: Oh, yeah. The Walkmans, of course, they came along, took it to like a whole nother level. For me, they, like you said, a lot of nostalgia is holding it in your hand. The albums, you know, used to have the liner notes and the not all, but many of them used to have the lyrics in them. Of course, they've all replaced that with YouTube lyric videos and things like that. Now, you know, I always joke like if we ever have some crazy electromagnetic pulse that comes to space from the sun or something like that and wipes out everybody's phones and everything and your kids are like having a heart attack because they can't listen to music, but I, all I have to do is break out like an old stereo or cassette deck or something. I, at least I can still manage somehow to listen to some music. It's just our our era of growing up in that time and everything and Physically owning it. Uh, the funny thing is, I I did listen to some old cassettes this past year. I just dug a few blank ones out. A lot of times, I, ne- I never wrote on what, what was on them, so just happened to just pop one in and just play it. I found a break dancing contest like in Norfolk. It was like some channel down in that area, and it was just funny because it perfectly described like probably like the 83 to 84 to 85 years, like when break dancing was so huge and. There was some sort of breakdance contest at like a skate rink or something. It was so funny just to listen to the promo for it. You know, I'm like, wow, that, that really
0: takes you back. <laughs> I have a memory of Sean Lambert putting some cardboard down in seventh grade and break dance. It might have been sixth grade. I don't know what grade it was. I just remember that like it was yesterday. I was just so in awe of that. I didn't know how to break dance, So when Sean Lambert threw that uh, cardboard down and started breakdancing, I was like, what in the what just happened?
1: I know. Yeah, I was never good at it. We, we tried it a lot, too. We used to put out, like, sheets of linoleum There was, like, an L&M tile right up the street from us. So we would bring sheets of it, like, that they would throw out to be in the trash. And we'd make these platforms just like that, but I, I was never good at it. I, I was always in awe of watching like people windmill and stuff like that. I could pop and lock a little bit, but some of that stuff that they did, I, I was never that really that good at.
0: I was just thinking about the popping and locking. Like some of us knew how to maybe pop and lock, but we didn't know how to do the break dance. <laughs> but we knew how to do like the kid and play. Uh, I think That's Troy true. just met kid and play. I saw it on his Facebook page, and
1: yeah that was that was cool
0: <laughs> yeah we might have known how to do the pop and lock or the um kid and play but that was about all we knew how to do
1: yeah the robot to this day i'll still do a little robot you know just to make everybody laugh but yeah that's about all i had in my repertoire
0: <laughs> it couldn't pull much out when did you first discover music for
1: me it was it was definitely my dad the funny thing it was just so many aspects of it like you know at night when he you know everybody would go to bed i even my cousin i remember telling me this years ago he goes man i I remember standing over your house when we were kids, and he would have his headphones on, and you could you could hear what he was listening to, like from the bedroom. And it wasn't because it was necessarily that loud. I guess it's just the way that those big old school uh, headphones he had some Pioneer. The cups were so huge, and I guess it just kind of bled out a little bit. But like just memories of that, my dad had a really old school. I'm sure it was older than I was, but it was one of these record holders. It was like a three or a four tier. It was a pole that went from between the floor and the ceiling is like spring-loaded, and it had three or four sections where you just slid your albums into. It was almost like those records he didn't full with like a whole lot. The ones that were facing my room, the stereo room was like right next to our bedroom, so just remember growing up and seeing that Rolling Stones album. I can't remember which one it is, but it's the one of the silhouette of their, their head, and it kind of goes on and on into the background. I can't remember what album that is. Just certain albums like that that I just seemed like I looked at my whole childhood that he had in that record holder. My dad had the whole shebang. He had the reel-to-reel, the A track Really, the nice part was the receiver and the speakers that he had. They just sounded unbelievable. My mom was always a big fan of certain songs with beats. You know, it had a good drum beat to it. Of course, that whole disco era grew up listening to everything you can think of. Uh, One of her favorite songs was uh, Knock on Wood by Amy Stewart, which is like, I think, a remix or a remake of a song from like the 60s. But they put like the disco beat to it. You know, he would always play that for my mom, pretty much. As far as I can remember back, it was always everything always revolved around his setup in there.
0: Well, we're about three shows into this uh, new podcast. I think each and every podcast we've talked about the Rolling Stones. That uh, album that you're talking about is the Hot Rocks. It's like their greatest yes. hits. That's it.
1: That's it. You're exactly right. Now that you say that, I remember it
0: now. Yeah, and it's just funny yeah. how you put that, you know, with a memory and you remember. Uh, it, it, it probably helps you remember that that living room and your bedroom and, you know, your your whole family uh, aesthetic just by remembering that uh, one or two album.
1: Yep, yeah. It's like um, I just went and got pretty much all the photo albums from my dad this past weekend. He was like, you know, just come get these. He goes, I'm sure y'all will enjoy seeing a lot of these pictures. He goes, I don't really have anything I can do with and share them with the family and everything. Of course, all of our birthdays used to happen in that dining room where the stereo was. So all the pictures you see from us from the time were just like, like barely walking until high school, all you see like pictures of the, the speakers or something in the background. Those are the speakers that I ended up buying for my stereo system because of why we're having this conversation right now. It's because the effect that they had on me growing up. There's a thousand different speakers out there. Those Pioneer HPMs, what I wanted. That's the sound that Takes me back, and the stereo that takes me back. It's funny to look at all those old pictures and see the same old stereo in the background. And it's funny on my Facebook page. One of the first pictures I shared, which I think was like 13 years ago when I first got on, was a, a birthday from I'm sure it was elementary school. It was probably fifth grade, and it was a uh, Sharp and Brian Schwank, my best friend Chris. I think my cousin might have been in the picture, but I'm um, I had just opened up a double sided cassette tape box. It's like a brown one. And I'm sure a lot of kids had them when we were growing up. And of course, I still have that. It still has all the old cassette that I collected all the way up through probably middle school until probably around by the time high school came around. I was probably taping less stuff, buying more pre recorded stuff. But I, I used that box pretty much all the way through high school. Still have it. It's just funny to look back and still see pictures all the way growing up of that stereo and, and all the stuff that we got during that time.
0: Yeah, there were certain places, you know, in the house that uh, were just family gatherings one was the table of course the other one was the tv and then the you know the third one was you know the record player and uh you know or your or your sound system and to um you know outside it was like the ballpark or your friend's house and you know riding bikes or whatever it was or maybe the lake or whatever or if you had like a creek or something near your house um so those were like the main days of where we were growing up so to be able to remember those things and put your, like, right next to it is where you have the, so you had, like, two places right next to one another. You had the record player and the dinner table. Yep.
1: All that was, yeah, because like I said, we were probably talking about a 700-square-foot house. A lot of stuff had to be right next to it. You didn't have anywhere else to really put it. The confines were a little tight back then. It was no problem. You know, you don't really think about it as a kid. just all good. And, of course, you can relate to this. I I remember seeing my dad's face. You know, he would put a record on, and you would forget sometimes that it was a a record. And you'd walk through there, and you might bump into something. record would skip just a little bit, and the look on my dad's face. And you would just go, oh, and you start tiptoeing, like, oh, I forgot. That was always kind of funny because his stuff was so nice that you, you know, you didn't even, you never wanted to hear the record skip. You always had to watch yourself around that.
0: My daughter, she is like an elephant, and she walks through the house like with just a vengeance. (laughs) And when she does, when you're playing a record, it's like, don't do that. Like a record's like, oh, I'm sorry. But she's still walking around like a rhinoceros. So it doesn't really, it's like you went from one extreme to the other. So, But at least she's trying not to skip the record. Uh, So I do do feel that. I do feel for you on that. (laughs) What is the first song that you remember?
1: You know, that's a good question. I have pondered on this quite a bit. It's so hard because there were so many. I probably have to go back. It's definitely one of the most fondest memories is going back to my mom and liking songs with drums and not really... Like so much heavy metal drums, just that very simple but solid drum beat. And I remember, uh, of course, you would remember this song growing up. Fleetwood Mac had a song called Tusk. I believe it was done with the USC Marching Band. That has a just a, I don't know, incredible drum beat all through the song. It's just very hypnotic. That was one of the songs that I my dad would put that song on, and my mom would just kind of come out of nowhere bebopping through the house because, like, she just loved that song. Continued beat from that song, and as a matter of fact, it's really ironic. I heard it, I think, either yesterday or today, while I was out and about, and I hadn't heard it in a long time. And it was actually one of the first songs I played when I got the speakers that my dad has had since you know I was a kid. As soon as I got those speakers, I'm like, what is what is the song I want to hear? You know, now that I finally have gotten these speakers that I've been wanting for years, and I'm like, I know exactly what I want. I pulled it. I I found the record probably about a year before, like just out, you know, looking in different shops, I threw that record on and, and put it right on Tusk, and it was just like, wow. It's just, and it is something incredible about playing the record. It You know, you could certainly stream it. It's just something about hearing that needle drop just takes it to a whole new level. So I'd have to say that was probably the first one. And like I said earlier, uh, Amy Stewart, Knock on Wood, that was another one of my mom's favorites. Probably those two for sure. I know for sure the Amy Stewart one was late 70s. and I w- I'm pretty sure the Tusk one was, because that— Trying to think if Tusk came out maybe after. Yeah, it had been late 70s too, but th- those are probably the oldest memories I have of songs that my dad played for sure.
0: Fleetwood Mac is one of those bands that when you're getting into vinyl, they say to pick up, and Rumors is the one that they say to pick up, but really uh, any Fleetwood Mac is going to sound good on vinyl. And there's others that uh, sound good on vinyl as well. But to hook up those speakers, and you really have to have some good equipment. People don't realize they think, oh, I'll just plug it into this little thing. No, get yourself some good speakers. Get yourself a good amplifier. Get yourself a good turntable, not a Crosley, and put those records on, and you will just be blown away. It's something that's just not the same coming out of your, phone speakers or your you know little headphones from nope. your phone and you got to get good headphones too if you get a phone like i don't get those little just stick in your ear headphones i'm getting no. you know good headphones you got to get some good headphones
1: absolutely no i have gotten kind of an oddball name brand but yes i have bought some nice over the ear headphones uh, i'm not a fan at all of the uh, well actually most of those are uncomfortable to me even though i know they make certain ones that are more ergonomically comfortable. I've never been a fan of the the in the ear. I know they're very easy to just throw in your pocket and take anywhere, but yeah, I've never been a real big fan of those.
0: Yeah, I have to get headphones. I got to get some cans on and I got to listen to my music. I'm not listening to my music on some fairy tale headphones or, you know, those little teeny (laughs) headphones. It's like, give me some real headphones, some real speakers. And I even went out and bought some speakers from my wife's cousin because, She's trying to listen to Floyd on, like, not a Crosley, but something like a Crosley. And I'm like, you need some speakers to listen to Pink Floyd. You would just be blown away. And she spent, the, like, the rest of the time listening to Floyd because she had great speakers. And my wife's like, why do you have to go out and get these speakers for her? I don't understand. I'm like, you'll understand once she has these speakers. She's trying to listen, you know, to Pink Floyd through a, a freaking, you know, not really her phone, but it's almost like a might as well just be a phone, a little teeny phone you know, speakers, she needs like blaring speakers that she'll be able to hear Pink Floyd in all of its glory on vinyl in her room.
1: And not only to hear it, but to feel it. Uh, I think a lot of people don't understand it. like when you play an album or whatever you're listening to, if you have the right equipment, you don't just hear it, you really feel it. I mean, the bass, not even just the bass of the drums, but sometimes just the, the bass guitar the groove. It's like I'm with you. It pains me to have to ever listen to music straight out the phone. You know, there are times where, you know, I'm grateful that I have a a smartphone on me at all times. So if it's the only thing I have, you know, I'll do it. You know, I'll just pull up Apple Music and just listen to some music, but it's always my last resort because even my cars, I've I've got subwoofers and everything. Now, when I was 20, you know, I had a subwoofer because I wanted to rattle the rear view mirror off the car and that whole thing and it just sounded ridiculous you listen to bass tapes and stuff and you you got a kick out of that as i've gotten older it's just really because i like to feel the music not so much that i want it really loud it just enhances the whole experience
0: yeah when we used to drive down dmv drive or drive down virginia beach boulevard virginia beach when we were going vacation as youngsters in our cars and we had the boom boxes in the back and we were basically blaring music it was like a rite of passage you had to you had to do that (laughs) funny
1: you say that i don't know if you're being literal but i know when my buddy and i in high school we made a couple road trips i had bought probably in the 10th, maybe 10th grade, maybe, uh, the, or the summer after the 10th grade. I bought a huge boom box that I still have from Luskin's on Broad Street, which, of course, has been out of business for years. But it's a huge Lasonic boom box. And, of course, uh, he just had a little factory radio. He didn't have the money to put a stereo in the car. So we literally sat the boom box in the back seat and would play Appetite for Destruction over and over and over and over again, you know, on these road trips because that was still better than, listening to it through some rinky dink car stereo back in the early 80s you know car systems were just not very desirable so the boombox was the next best thing Uh, we definitely did that back in the day
0: it's like that old movie when they're talking about um listening to jimmy and hearing jimmy we wanted to hear jimmy right we wanted to hear (laughs) jimmy jimmy speak to me jimmy speak to me (laughs) that's right (laughs) all right we're going to take a break we'll be right back so hang on back i'm johnny bravo you're going under the musical influence of today's guest chris key on under the influence with dj johnny bravo all right let's talk about girlfriends we're going to talk about that long distance dedication or what was that first couple song that you remember wow
1: you know it is funny i'll just say briefly all the way back to like the fifth grade and i won't even mention names because it's somebody we both know but it's just you know everybody had their crush back then but I do remember Separate Ways by Journey, which is – that song can mean, I guess, different things to different people. But for some reason, that's always been a song that I've associated with back then. But like I said, I won't mention names. And, of course, I'm a huge Journey fan, too. Um Always have been, you know, really since it, when Escape come out, which was huge, when uh Frontiers came out and uh that Separate Ways video, just the video and everything, I just remember so vividly. I, that just always takes me back in time to the fifth grade when that whole deal was going on. I guess as far as my wife and I have been married 26 years now, and when we were dating back in the early 90s, not, not a lot of people would probably remember this band. Yeah, it was a band called Steelheart that came out. One of those bands like Firehouse that really came out too late. I think they would have been a lot more successful it had they come out like in the mid 80s because of the sound that they had their big song was I'll Never Let You Go like a power ballad that was definitely our song I remember we were at Colonel Beach a bunch of us went on a summer vacation down there we went to a nightclub it was an under 21 nightclub because we were all still under 21 at the time that song came on and that was kind of like our song just a, another tidbit I don't, just to add to that you remember Everett Phelps from high school Yeah, mm-hmm. he actually had the cassette And he didn't, for some reason, he didn't like it. And I offered to buy it from him. I actually bought it from him while we were still on Myrtle Beach because of that one song. Funny thing is, you and I probably, I can't imagine you haven't done this back in the day, but this was a big thing back in in our time with, like, the mixtape you made for, like, your girlfriend. So, of course, I made my wife a mixtape when we were dating. I think I still have that in the house somewhere. Of course, I left that in her car one night. You know, that uh seems like everybody back in the 80s that grew up made their girlfriend a, a mixtape. Even though this was early 90s, we were still rocking tapes even back then. Yeah, that was our song. That's two that come to mind, I think, when it comes to taking you back to a specific memory, for sure.
0: Yeah, two things, basically hair metal bands and their power ballads. And then the other yes. thing is the mixtape. I mean, if you had a girl, you were making her a mixtape. And sometimes if you could, you know, if you got a a cheap microphone from Radio Shack or whatever, you might even been talking over the thing. You know, you might've been, you might've been like, Hey baby, you know, this is a steel heart, you know, whatever.
1: Yeah. It sounds like, sounds like John's divulging maybe some of his old techniques from back in the day.
0: (laughs) Yeah. My stories always start out with another name. And my, my daughter is like, did you date all these people? I'm like, well, not at the same time.
1: (laughs) That's right. Just to, uh kind of go back to Steelheart, If certainly if, if anybody likes that genre of music, that first album by them, uh, which a lot of people may have picked up on later on when they made the movie Rockstar with Mark Wahlberg, the guy singing Mark Wahlberg music in that movie was the lead singer for Steelheart. That guy has got an incredible set of pipes. That first album, album was incredible it's like i said if you're into that power ballad and power rock kind of like the end of that era so to speak that was this thing i played that endlessly it's like every song on it in my opinion was great just like firehouse i was a huge firehouse fan when they came out uh, everybody thinks Firehouse was an 80s band, but I know for a fact their album meter came out in 90 or 91. They were huge, too. They just came in a hair too late, and by the time they really started getting some airplay, you know, that's when kind of grunge kind of crept in there and kind of put that fire out. A little disappointing. I, I did listen to some grunge. I'm, I'm not going to be a grunge snob by any means. For those of us who grew up in the 80s, it was definitely the end of an era, and it probably, everything I've ever watched, you know, they were like, the music had gotten kind of stale and things needed to progress, I guess, and it had gotten like almost too, well, I already said stale, but it just needed a kick in the butt. That's kind of what grunge provided. Yeah, that Steelheart album, that first one, was really good.
0: Yeah, Firehouse was a local band around Virginia. I think a couple of the members were from Mechanicsville, and I met them and got their autographs and everything, of course working at the radio station. I'm not sure what member it was, but we were, it was the 90s because we were already out and about downtown, you know, Shaco Bottom, doing the club scene and all that kind of stuff when those albums were out because he was downtown getting pizza, and I remember he he had like a new exterior or some kind of you know jeep type thing or whatever some red vehicle because of Firehouse, he was sitting there eating pizza, and we're sitting there talking to him. I think the first album was already, I think they were working on like album number two, but I think that one really fizzled, you know.
1: Yeah, the second one was pretty good. Actually, Um, I think it was Michael Foster, the drummer, actually graduated from Holland Springs, I believe, in like 88, maybe, something like that, which I, you know, I didn't know at the time when they, when they first came out. Yeah, and a couple other guys I think were from Carolina. The first album was just killer. I mean, that was another one that I played probably front to back more times than I can even imagine. Like, first had it on cassette and then got the CD when CD started getting popular. And then the second album was, I think, in my opinion, almost as good. I bought that one, of course, and played it quite a bit. Yeah, just unfortunate kind of timing. And I, I caught them. They came back You know, a few times uh, they actually opened up for Tesla in the early '90s at the amphitheater. I actually liked them a little bit better than Tesla, and that's no slouch to Tesla because I know they're they were a really good band and had a lot of hits out at the time firehouse you know they were they were pretty hungry back then and they i think it's just a shame that they not a whole lot they could do about it just the the timing of the industry and everything they had that sound that if they had come out like the mid 80s they could have you know they could have been in the mix with all those other bands that were out at that
0: time well speaking of concerts and you just mentioned tesla and i've probably said it on the show before but poison and tesla was my first concert what was your first concert or what was the first concert that you remember
1: you know what um i I said I didn't go to a lot of concerts as a kid for probably various reasons. I guess probably one being I would have had to have a parent take me, and it's kind of hard to convince your parents to take you to certain groups that you like to see. The first one that honestly I can remember going to—this may sound funny—but Hank Williams Jr. Like in the late '80s, I guess would have been '87 or '88, I think. And of course, I'm, I'm a huge Hank Williams Jr. fan. He's probably by far my favorite country artist. I, I like his music all the way back from the late 70s all, all the way up to basically till the day. I've just been a huge fan of his. He was really at his pinnacle in that time. He was winning Entertainer of the Year back to back of back and and just all kinds of ATA awards and stuff. He, he could do no wrong back then. Uh, I remember going to see him at the Coliseum with my best friend. Of course, my brother and some of his friends were, like, on the floor. We were kind of up high. but that's the first concert that I can really remember just thinking back, and, of course, it was an incredible concert. He's one of those artists, you know, you have some artists where you go to see them in concert, and they kind of almost play everything by the book, but Hank doesn't do that. If anybody is listening, has ever listened to Hank or been to a, like, if you listen to the Hank Live's, CD that came out around the same time, or if you've ever been to one of his concerts, he'll do a lot of medleys because he has so many songs that for an artist like that, it's hard to get them all in a, in one concert. So he'd do a lot of medleys. He likes to mix up his lyrics a little bit, just kind of based on sometimes what's going on in the world and stuff. It was a really good concert actually, but that's definitely the first one that I can remember. And then I'm gonna, I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna take you in a completely opposite direction, and you may get a good laugh at this. I don't know this for sure, but I believe, because time does escape me, either I won these tickets or my best friend's sister at the time won these tickets. Me and my buddy ended up going to the New Kids concert when they came back in like the late 80s. Everybody probably would get a good laugh out of that and say, wow, really? You know, you went to a New Kids concert. You know, when you're in high school and and it's like the biggest boy band on the planet is coming to your town, the first thing that goes to your mind is there's going to be like 10,000 girls at this concert. (laughs) You know, we were like, forget what everybody thinks. You know, we're going to go to this concert. And I will tell you that without question, there is not even a close second place is the loudest I've ever been inside a, a building in my life when when they come out on stage there had to be some glass breaking somewhere in that coliseum because i've never i mean i I've been to air shows at, like, Langley and Oceana, and I haven't had to put my fingers in my ears when the jets go over like I did at at the Coliseum that night. It was funny, you know, just to, I mean, of course, there were other guys at the concert, and uh, I'm not going to say, I'm not going to be a snob either and say I I don't like new kids because I I did like their music back in the day. That was probably the other concert I remember around the same time period that we went to, and it was actually a pretty good concert. As you can see, they're still on the road to this day, actually. I think salt and Pepper is uh, touring with them uh, last time. I saw, I think, um, I know they were touring with somebody, but still out on the road. I know they did some stuff with Backstreet Boys, too, a couple years ago. Still plugging along. They put on a good show, i got to admit.
0: Recently, I posted uh, Tiffany's record because it was celebrating an anniversary. And actually, Tiffany's coming down to the beach at Peabody's. I went to the Tiffany New Kids on the Block concert when I was working for Q94. And Tiffany was the headliner. And at this particular show... New kids superseded her and had become the headliners. So she opened up and she's just pissed. I mean, she's playing her music, but she's just pissed and everybody's wanting to see new kids. And I mean, these, Guys that were the roadies or whatever were popping up, and all the girls thought they were new kids, so they were going, you know, crazy and screaming every time somebody would pop up because they thought it was one of the boys. Garrett Chester from Q94 and I were sitting at the flagpole because this concert took place at Kings Dominion at Doswell, and we were sitting at the flagpole outside of the of the venue. We could see in, but couldn't really see the guys. We knew they were lip syncing and dancing because you can't dance and, and um, not be breathing at all. And so we knew they were lip syncing, we just shaking our heads going, what in the world do these girls see in New Kids? But you're right, there were so many girls at the New Kids show.
1: It was just unbelievable. Yeah, once they kind of hit, you know, I could see... Because Tiffany, I remember her from back in high school, but from what I do remember, she was like... It was a thing back in the day that they would go on these mall tours. She was like one of these girls that did, like, a mall tour. She would hit all these huge malls around the country, play in the malls, which was kind of wild. But, you know, kind of one of those things where once they got big enough that it it was no surprise that she kind of got bumped to, like, uh, starting duties, and then they were, like, the main act. So... Like them or not, they at least really big for those few years, like probably in their early 90s. Yeah, they were hard to touch.
0: That is a good, good point about Tiffany and, and new kids too. I mean, there are those um, artists that we like that we just don't want to tell anybody because we're afraid of what somebody might say. It's okay to like, you know, new kids and it's okay to uh, like Tiffany. And those uh, artists um, really defined a generation. We hadn't seen anything like that in our young minds anyway, coming into malls and uh, doing the kind of things that they did as a band.
1: You know, everybody's called it guilty pleasures. You know, what's that one guilty pleasure you have as far as like a musician or something? I try to, I don't really think of it as that anymore because I tend to look fondly. I guess when you're growing up, you think about that more. When you get older, you just appreciate the music. I, I'm a huge George Michael fan. A lot of people, you know, never I guess they didn't like him because they wasn't cool maybe to like him, I guess. Just like because he was in Wham! You know, it's like, oh my God, I no way I would listen to George Michael, but he is like probably one of my top three. He's right there behind Van Halen. You know, if I uh, had to shoehorn him in, easily in the top five artists of all time that I like. Yeah, I don't really look at him as guilty pleasures anymore. I, you know, people ask me, you know, sometimes in conversation, what music do I like? And I'm like, pretty much anything from January 1st, 1980 to December 31st, 1989. If, if in that time period, I'm guaranteed I I like it they want to play some music and they're worried that I might not like it if it's in that decade we're good
0: (laughs) we're good as long as it's in that decade well what was your first music purchase and uh, what record store did you go to to purchase that
1: you know this is where my Rain Man abilities come in because I really remember like every first of everything just about my first actual purchase with my own money was Ebony and Ivory by TV Wonder and Paul McCartney on 45 so that was the first purchase of course I still have that and it's a picture 45, which is cool. It's got, you know, them two on the cover. That was my very first purchase. I want to say, now, I'm a little shaky on where I, I, I'm i almost positive that it came from Eastgate Mall. I'm just not sure if I got it. Because GC Murphy's, for everybody that grew up in our era and went to that mall, GC Murphy's had music, a nice little section of music that they had. Of course, Gary's was, you know, the place. But it was either from one of those two locations that I got that. The very first album I ever bought with my own money was Friend or Foe by Adam Ant. MTV introduced me to Adam Ant. I don't know. Radio did play some Adam Ant. I think they played Goody Two Shoes was probably like the one hit that they played on the radio the most. He got There was another song called Desperate But Not Serious that I was a really big fan of. And, of course, this was all induced by MTV. We could just make a whole nother episode of MTV and the influence that it had on me personally as far as music of our generation, really. That's where a lot of my influences came from for me personally was from MTV, and Adam Ant was one of those guys. Others thought he looked really cool. You know, he kind of had a unique fashion. He used to put the face paint on So that was the first album I actually bought with my own money. And then, of course, I mentioned earlier that the first, album that I actually ever got the one for Christmas the Eddie Money No Control I really love that album too um, love me some Eddie Money he's got that just that style kind of carried him all the way through the, the 80s that I, I really like with him I remember that one and then of course the first cassette that I ever bought go ahead and hold your heart I know this is going to be a real big shocker for you it was Thriller by Michael Jackson <laughs> probably you know uh, I'm sure one of like several several million people that you know bought that back in the day but that was actually the first full length cassette that I bought with my own money was was Thriller, and I'm I'm almost certain I got that at GC Murphy. I want to say they had it on sale for about five bucks, which I think for like a, a pre-recorded cassette back then that was like a pretty good little deal. So I'm, I remember picking that up. So those are the the three main ones. CD wise, it's funny because I've got I think it was my senior year of high school. It was either my senior year or the first year after graduation. My mom and Dave got me a portable CD player for Christmas. I, you know, I, I don't think they actually got me a CD, which it just kind of killed me. I think I just ended up playing some of my dads for the time being. The very first CD that I remember buying was the Steve Miller's Greatest Hits, which was a must-have back then. You know, even though Steve Miller had been around for a long time, you know, for us growing up, a Greatest Hits was like huge. That was like your bang for the buck. If you didn't, wa- didn't want to take a risk on buying an album that you didn't know if it only had the one or two hits on it, you would just, you know, oh, look, here's a Greatest Hits by somebody. I know all 10 of these songs are really good. That was like the first CD purchase that I got was that. Yeah, a lot of good memories. And of course, I have all of the, all of those still. The, the albums I actually have hanging on my wall in my music room just to kind of remind me of where I started.
0: Wow, um, I had that on 45 too, that Ebony and Ivory. And there was a really good, Eddie Murphy did a really good thing on uh, Saturday Night Live of Ebony and Ivory that was really funny. I remember that. Yeah, all of those are really great uh, choices there. And you're right about the greatest hits. You, you had to get a greatest hits at some point for someone, but if you're going to get any greatest hits, that Steve Miller is one. The Eagles is another one. Yes, You have to have those in yeah. your collection, and I'm sure there's plenty more, but that's a good starting point for any artist, is a greatest hits. And when we were looking at albums and tapes and whatever back in the day, we were like really making sure our money went the furthest and we were counting the amount of hits that were on that, you know, so two, three or four to see who could, you know, have more. And I'm sure looking at that value of that Michael Jackson, cause he probably had seven or eight off a of thriller. You were like five bucks. I mean, that's the given. That's like a buck, a, a buck, a hit right there.
1: Oh, yeah. Thriller was a greatest hits record. I think there were only two songs that weren't released, actually. The radio. Yeah, that was. There was no shock there. And, and I think, I'm pretty sure I have at least two 45s that I had bought before I even bought the tape. I have uh, Beat It, which was probably my favorite off of that album. And then... um Want to be starting something? Pitcher 45 that I still have. Uh, I know I bought those two before I even bought the cassette. Greatest hits back in the day were like a no brainer. I've, I've got several of those. I know Chicago, 87 to like 89 or something like that. I forgot. I remember having that one in high school, and that was one of the, my favorites back then, but that was definitely the way to go. You know, that's something the kids now don't have to worry about because with streaming services, you just basically create a playlist of whatever songs you want. When you say greatest hits, a lot of times, a lot of kids probably don't really understand what you mean by
0: that. That's true. And if you get a chance, if you haven't seen it, I Want My MTV, they started that whole... I want my MTV as a marketing ploy for people like in the Midwest and different areas uh, to want their MTV to go to the cable subscriber and get it because, you know, MTV almost went under. And we got a lot of our influences from MTV watching that. We We would have gotten into a lot of the different artists that we were in without seeing the video. And that was like a huge thing, too. For us to, you know, witness is the video, the music video talked about Hank Williams earlier in watching this documentary. They say that, you know, they ran out of videos. They were playing Charlie Daniels, Devil Went Down to Georgia, you know, overnights and different things because they were running out of videos. Um, So that's definitely one, uh, if you haven't seen that documentary, to watch. And the reason why you had that British invasion or that second, you know, wave or whatever in the '80s was because a lot of the videos at the time were made um, overseas and they were made in Britain, and um, we weren't making a lot of videos here in the United States because it just wasn't a thing. The second
1: British invasion, yeah, that I'm a huge New Wave fan, of course. Duran uh, Duran, just like, you know, you just name it, whoever, like the Cars. Of course, Cars were American. But they were part of that uh, new wave sound that came in. Yeah, all those groups uh, that came through the early 80s, yeah, I was a huge, huge fan of that. Like you said, the videos really helped propel them into the spotlight, whereas normally we probably wouldn't have known much about them because I think a lot of people don't realize that uh, British uh, radio charts, there were some groups that kind of superseded, like, across the world, but not everybody in britain you know made it big in the united states you know the videos really helped bring artists to our country that we would have normally not probably been exposed to so i enjoy pulling up on youtube sometimes and finding uh people that have uploaded old mtv footage and it's just funny to look back and you can really tell that they were really winging it at times you know it wasn't this super structured type channel that people are used to probably these days. Back then, it was just these young VJs that they just, you know, cut the camera on and they would just start talking. You could tell looking back that they were just as green as they could be. As a kid, you didn't really care. You're just waiting for the next music video to come on. And first thing I cut on when I got home from school, you know, I'd cut it right on. Of course, you know, we were growing up as channel 33 on cable with MTV. And when they added VH1, it was channel 34. And those were the two channels that I pretty much watched all the way up through schools. A lot of good memories of MTV.
0: Got to be a fan of MTV and, and uh, God bless them for start that uh, programming because man, I miss it nowadays. I mean, when they went into, you know, they were for one of the first pioneers of reality TV as well. I just wish they would go back to the videos because that was just, man, that was just like the best time ever. For music
1: it's unfortunate what happened to NTV even though the channel's still around it's I don't think there's any music content it's just all TV shows I, I guess their argument is that kids can pretty much YouTube music videos these days and they don't really need to really have it on as far as programming and I guess the that aspect I could understand. I guess that's what made it so special growing up in the 80s is you didn't have everything necessarily at your fingertips. You kind of could enjoy the channel for what it was and have the memories from it. But I do remember, like you said, they, when they launched, they just had a handful of videos. I think Pat Minotaur was in heavy rotation. She had put a video out. Where there were certain videos that you saw probably a lot because they just didn't have very much to go by. And I actually saw something here in the past week. They were interviewing an artist from back in the 70s or 80s. Some of the videos that you see from back then, they weren't, made for MTV because they were made a lot of them were made that, that you saw later on were even pre-mTV but he said they would make like promotional videos just for overseas like these like if American artists made a video back in like the late 70s it was really just as a promotional thing to send over like to Europe and Asia help promote albums and stuff it really you know they had no idea that there were there was going to be a channel that just showed music videos 24/7 it's just kind of crazy how that all snowballed definitely introduced me to a lot of artists you know I probably wouldn't have otherwise known and a lot of one hit wonders i remember a song called mexican radio which is wall of voodoo a very obscure song that my brother and i used to always laugh at when it came on and certain songs like that that just you would never hear these days on the radio
0: but i know i could speak to you know you and others that we would still use that mantra i want my mtv
1: yes absolutely
0: without question all right we're going to be back uh, right after this hang on
1: with DJ Johnny
0: We are back. I'm Johnny Bravo. You're going under the musical influence of today's guest, Chris Key, on Under the Influence with DJ Johnny Bravo. Chris, what is your favorite song?
1: Yeah, that's like having, you know, 100 kids, which I know is impossible. It'd be like having 100 kids and just saying, all right, just let us know what your favorite child is. No pressure. You know, I'm just going to take the easy route. I'm like a huge Van Halen fan. I'm going to go ahead and pick a song off 1984 that made, I know it would probably shock a lot of people because I think. When 1984 came out, obviously Jump made a Van Halen fan out of a lot of people, kids or people that grew up during that time. That was like the song that kind of introduced them to Van Halen. The song I'll Wait was my personal favorite on that, and it was just because of the keyboards. Um, Anybody that knows any history about Van Halen, part of why they claim there was so much uh, infighting between Eddie Van Halen and David Lee Roth at this time was because Roth absolutely hated synthesizers because he, he was like, you're a guitar god, you're not a keyboardist, and uh, why do you want to play keyboards on a on our album? But Eddie was a genius, in my opinion, and to a lot of people, and, and he knew what he liked. That song, to me, I have very unique memories of having my boombox in my lap sitting down and just listening to this song, and I, I remember even taping it off. I was unfortunate enough I didn't have this... Uh, uh, album growing up I, I later did was able to dub it off of a, someone another good friend of mine's cassette but uh, I'll wait was probably the one song that that jumps out is probably my favorite Van Halen song probably a little obscure for a lot of folks some folks that don't really love Van Halen. Probably would have a hard time remembering that song. Another fun fact is it was also co-wrote by Michael McDonald, which a lot of people don't know, which is kind of out of left field. Would have been really cool if he did like background vocals on it, but I don't think he did. But <laughs> that would probably be my favorite. If I had to pick a close second place, I, like I said, I'm a huge Chicago fan. People didn't like Chicago as much when uh, Peter Sotero left. They had a kind of a ballad on Chicago 18 called Will You Still Love Me? I think it came out around 87, uh, 88, around that time. Of course, Jason Chef came in and took over for Pita Cetera as bassist and uh, lead vocalist, along with Bill Champlin. That song is just always song when it comes on. It, like if I'm flipping through stations or something, I hear it, or if I just happen to come across it, I have to just listen to the whole song. I, I can't like change it. I got to listen to the whole thing. I'm not sure why that song has so much personal connection with me, but even my kids like it. They'll sing along to it if we're in the car together. So I think that song has had universal appeal and longevity I and mean, it, it was probably one of their biggest singles during that iteration i know it wasn't their biggest it was definitely up there
0: that would be a close second place chicago and peter satara uh, a lot of people you know are probably scratching their heads about peter satara karate kid has come back around with you know cobra kai being out on netflix karate kid part two he sang the love theme to karate kid part two was peter satara from chicago
1: he had a great Solo career for sure. I mean, he that song was huge. Um, you know, he had several really, really big songs uh, when he left the band. I, I like all of Chicago actually, from even back er, the very earliest of Chicago all the way up through the end. I, I just I kind of became a band a fan of all their music. Probably for me that initially became a fan when Chicago 16 came out. When they I can't think of the fellow's name, but this, the producer, the famous producer that came in and kind of saved the band. He'll hit me here in a second. He's a hugely successful music producer. I'm really angry. I can't remember his name, but Foster. can't remember his first name. Something Foster. David Foster, I think? Yeah. David Foster came in in, in the early 80s and basically saved them from, because they were pretty much getting ready to lose their record deals and everything, when uh, their lead singer and one of their lead singers and lead guitarist, Terry Cass, accidentally killed himself with a pistol playing around and didn't realize it was loaded. Once he died, they pretty much... Could, had never recovered, and then David Foster came in and really kind of rejuvenated their sound, brought them into the, the 80s really strong, and that's when I became a, a big Chicago fan all through the 80s. But uh, even after Sotera left, I continued, became a Jason Chef fan. Later on, actually, I didn't realize Bill Champlin had been around for years, and he's the guy that's in hard habit to break. You know, when Peter Sotera breaks off, Bill Champlin's the one that sings, you're a hard habit to break. He's the one that sings that part and he's an incredible vocalist. He was in a band back in the 60s called uh, Sons of Champlin, which I, I, did, I had no idea. And then he put out, I think, two solo albums uh, in the early uh, 70s, early 80s, around that time, around, I think it was actually early 80s, two albums, and then when David Foster came in, he was like, you should bring this guy, Bill Champlin, in. That's when it just went, when Chicago 16 came out, they just went to a whole new level. Definitely a huge Chicago fan for sure.
0: Well, a short story about uh, Van Halen that probably haven't told you, you know, riding bikes was a big thing back in our day, and they built some new homes down near um, where the road that we lived on, and so we were riding through there, people had moved in, and we heard this music coming from the garage, you know, these garage bands or whatever, and these guys were playing all their instruments and everything. everything, and I'm riding my bike, and I'm kind of riding through their garage because they had the equipment set up, but they were still kind of, you know, you just were in everybody's business, you know, and they had a copy of 1984 sitting there with the kid, you know, smoking the cigarette and uh, all that on the cover, and I'm just thinking to myself, wow, and then these guys were, I don't know if they were playing Van Halen, I don't know what they were playing, but I was just so mesmerized by that cover of 1984 Van Halen just riding my bike that day, I don't know if I ever got that album back then, I know I have it now. And I know, I listen to it on the radio, but that is like one of my favorite memories. And riding my bikes, these cool high school guys, we were, you know, probably, probably uh, elementary school or middle school, or whatever we were, and riding our bikes through there and saw that album. And I was just like, these guys are cool. Look at this album with the little kid smoking the cigarette. They're cool.
1: Yeah, that, that was a little controversial back in the day, I remember. But, yeah, that that's another album in itself. There's no bad songs on it. I mean, it's just, like, incredible from beginning to end. I mean, of course, you and I probably both, if you think back, you know, when you found out that David Lee Roth had left the band, you're like, oh, my Lord, this is it. They're done, you know, like, how, how, how are they going to recover from this? And then they actually had more success as far as album sales with Sammy Hagar and I was one of these guys I didn't discriminate you had like two camps back then you had the Roth camp and the Hagar camp and I was always team Eddie you know I'm like as long as Eddie's playing guitar I'm I'm all in you know I, I, I love them both 5150 is by far to me 5150 is the Sammy Hagar's 1984, I mean, infection from front to back. We actually played, because if you remember the video from Best of Both Worlds, you know, on MTV, we did that dance at my wedding. Everybody lined up in a line, and you and you did your arms, you pumped your arms and, you know, your legs. <clears throat> we did that dance at my res- wedding reception. I mean, I was a huge Sammy Hagar fan. I, I thought that he he brought, like, pipes to Van Halen you know Roth could wail but Sammy Hagar could sing so that was the one thing that he brought to the band that they never had at that level was the uh, Sammy's ability to sing was just unbelievable and that man is like in his 70s and he's still out there singing still holding it down much much respect for for sammy Hagar, and i'm really glad that they you know they brought him into the band there's no telling what what direction it would have went in if he hadn't so
0: yeah i was in grand turk had my 2015 shirt on from when i went and saw him in concert uh with david lee roth and the guy uh came up to me i'm drinking a beer and he's like roth or Hagar. I'm like both. He's like <laughs> he couldn't he couldn't put his head around that. It's almost
1: like it's the older crowd that is like pro Roth, like the guys that were probably already in high school, the first couple albums came out in the seventies. Those are the guys that really cling on to the Roth era. But for us, you know, we were like right smack in the middle of it just to learn to appreciate both I think it's that generation before us that wants we'll to say, no, Roth was the king. And I give Roth a hundred percent credit. I will say he is way better as far as a front man to Van halen if i had to judge him between you know who's the better front man without a doubt david lee roth it's just there's no comparison you know you, there's no way you could discredit sammy and, and his vocals it's just they were just to me they were just two different lead singers and i can appreciate both of them
0: yeah you said 5150 ou812 was one of my faves from that era but you had foreign Loth o'connor knowledge you had balance you had their live double album i mean you had a lot of great hagar You know, so if you're discovering Van Halen for the first time, discover Hagar. Yep.
1: Absolutely no. That O.U. Eight One Two was probably uh, equal for me for fifty-one fifty. I think both of those. If somebody said I had to pick one, I I probably would just have a heart attack because that it's that would be such a hard decision. I played both of those cassettes until the writing actually came off. Yeah, O.U. Eight One Two. Eddie got like on some of the songs he was had a heavier style than he had ever had in my opinion. Like uh, A.F.U. Naturally Wild Source of Infection. Some of those songs. I mean, he's like Where you know. He's just wailing like you know. It's almost he went heavy metal a little bit nobody's ever blamed van halen or called him heavy metal per se like hard rock maybe but not you don't really say they're not like metallica or something like that it's just not their style but there are a handful of songs ou812 where he really took it to another level those to me were just as good as the hits if not a little bit better no i I loved ou812 as well for sure
0: i just think that the music they kind of got back into the music aspect of it Um, because they wouldn't have to worry all about the band and so the instrumentation uh, and the musicality just got a a lot better and you're right a lot heavier because they were just in their element you know they were letting Hagar do what his thing was and they were just doing their thing and I mean you know Van Halen were still succeeding because of it you know it was just such a a glorious time uh, for them but you know, speaking of of Roth, when we went to go see them in concert, I took my wife with me, and she's just sitting there, and she's like, "I don't understand what is going on with this guy. Is he drunk?" And I'm like, "Well, he's probably always drunk, you know. But he's the this is this is him. This is the frontman of the, the band. He was just so wild. You just kind of you know was that MTV area pre MTV area. You just wanted to see what Van Halen was going to do because what Roth was going to do. Like, what was the next crazy thing?" That he was going to do.
1: He was so good at improvising. Like when he would get interviewed, it was like, he kind of reminded me of Robin Williams. Like whenever Robin Williams would go to like show like Letterman or uh, Johnny Carson, you literally didn't know what you were going to get with Robin Williams. He was so unpredictable. But that's how... Roth was somebody would interview him and he would say something that was so witty but out of left field that you just you had to appreciate it. it the stuff he said you like he you know he couldn't have pre-planned it he had certain sayings that you just had to laugh when he talked the only thing I think it drove people nuts back in the day and this was before they reunited uh 10 years ago or so back before they broke up was that he would kind of all over the place like even back then people said that he would skip half the lyric honestly it was because as you know it was no lip syncing back in rock and roll back in the late 70s, early 80s. Well, if you ever watch any live footage of them, that dude is jumping all over the place. I don't think he was skipping lyrics because he forgot them. I think he was skipping lyrics because he was trying to catch his breath. Because he was leaping cartwheels. Later on, he was pulling out swords and stuff, swinging them around. You know, give him credit. I don't know what people do it. I don't know what, because I haven't been to a concert in a long time. I don't know what artists do with a concert anymore. Back then, it was an actual show. I mean, you really got a show when you went to a concert back in the day. I'm not sure if they do now. There was definitely no lip syncing. They were they were giving you everything back then.
0: Well, the shows, you know, are similar nowadays as they were back in the day. The only difference is, is when you see a rock and roll band, they're not doing the drum solos or the guitar solos. Now, when we went yeah. to see Van Halen, you know, Eddie's going to do his guitar solo. Everybody in the place, cuz normally that was a time to go get a beer or to go to get go to the bathroom or whatever, go buy a t-shirt, you know, when the guitar or the drum solo came on and plus to give the band a rest, everybody in the place, nobody left. Everybody in the place was standing up when Eddie Van Halen was playing, and I, I told my wife, I said, "This is one of the top ten guitarists, you know, in the world." And she's like, nuh-uh, and I'm like, "Look it up." And she looked it up, and she was like, "Man, he is, you know, one of the top ten living guitarists, you know, no, you know, no longer." But I mean, at the time, and people were just standing up, giving him the appreciation for that. But like Roth. You know, it was totally wild. I mean, and, and but that was Van Halen, and they changed, and we were okay with it.
1: Yeah, the only thing that I tell people to this day, um, whoever the management was up until 1984 should be hung up by their toes and beaten with a bamboo stick. For them to have never taken some serious live footage for like a live CD or a tape or something, only thing you can find from the Roth era before he left the band in 84 was stuff that people like really not great footage. It's like, I'm not sure if it's people, personal people that had some sort of camcorder, because you'll find stuff on the Us Festival. I don't know if you remember the Us Festival that Apple uh, had back in 83. Uh, Van Halen at the time, it was the highest single payday for a band. I think they paid Van Halen a million dollars to headline that show. Like a ton of artists that did it. It I think it was out in California. But Wozniak and uh, Steve Jobs held this Us Festival. Van Halen was the headliner. Now, you can find a lot of footage of it on YouTube, but it's not good enough that they could release it on a CD. I don't, I guess it can't even be cleaned up. So the management back in the day to not take some really show quality footage of that band and their prime is just an atrocity. It's just unbelievable that they allowed that to happen. There's plenty of bands back from the 70s that have a lot of really good live footage from back then, but For whoever was running Van Halen back then, for them to drop the ball like that, it just amazes me. It took until, I think, what, 93 or so when they – released that right here right now double cd with sammy which was great but you know to not have one with uh, roth they eventually did release one with Roth. i think over in japan Something about roth like when he can barely carry a tune in a wheelbarrow at this point it was just a shame that they went that long without you know that they didn't record them in their prime
0: yeah and back in the day too a lot of people don't realize is that we we would go into a show and get frisked and you know there would be a big barrel um beside uh, where they were frisking you and there would be cameras in there and camcorders. And everything like that, we couldn't take any of that into a show. Now you just take in your phone, and everybody's putting it on YouTube almost the you know the second after the show is over or the next day. There's plenty of footage of other bands that are out there with the cell phone era, but we just didn't have that back in the day because you couldn't even take a camera in to a no. show.
1: Yeah, piracy back. During concerts back then, a big deal. I, you may laugh. I don't know if you remember the episode of What's Happening. The guy talked rerun into uh, putting a tape recorder underneath his overcoat that he used to wear on the show, and it was the Doobie Brothers on there. Of course, he got up there and was dancing in the front row, and then the, tape, the cassette player recorder fell on the floor and at a the band stop it was pretty funny but that was like funny that they actually made an episode on that show about that because that's how locked down they were during concerts back then you know of course everybody knows the Grateful Dead used to openly allow people to record there's of course there's tapes that circulate all over the internet these days for Grateful Dead shows that go way 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 back yeah it was just a whole nother ball game back then glad
0: you mentioned the Grateful Dead they did open up their concerts uh, to let people in and record they were great for that yeah yeah all right someone asked this question but I think we've already answered it anyway, because it could have changed in the last few minutes. What's your favorite band?
1: Oh, it's definitely Van Halen. And it's funny, a lot of people that know me know that by now. Like, saying that, just like with anybody else, I love so much music. You know, it's not like I I have to listen to some Van Halen every day. But sometimes, with your favorite artists, you almost have to give them a rest sometimes. You can get caught up listening to them so much. So, I always like to revisit, you know, certain albums that I hadn't heard in a while. It's fun just to go back and just dip into some deep track albums But, you know, 1984 definitely made me fan that I am of them today. Like, their whole catalog is just incredible. And the funny thing is, and, of course, you'll remember this. I'm not sure if you ever went down this road. I actually did the Columbia House thing once I got my portable CD player. You know, what's the quickest way for me to really build up my CD collection? They were still sending those Columbia House things in the mail back then uh, in the early 90s. Probably the first 30 CDs that I got were all through Columbia House pretty much. well, close to it. So I, I got every Van Halen CD up until that point from Van Halen one all the way up until at that time it would have fully been I'm not sure if Carnal Knowledge was out by then but if so I would have got everything up to that point on CD and of course I did that with a lot of artists that you know I had cassettes on once you got introduced to CD fond as we can all be about cassettes the quality over time kind of took a downturn Van Halen will always be like number one for sure and losing Eddie a little over a year ago that was pretty rough you never really think about somebody that you listen to your whole life that's just gone just like that. And his passing was, you know, such a shock because he had kept it so private. It was tough losing him. You know, it it is good to see Wolfgang, you know, he just wrapped up his tour. Now he's got one tour under his belt. But this Eddie passed, the talent that he had and his uncle had, you know, his uncle passed on. Because for those that don't know Eddie's son, Wolfgang, he does it all. He does uh, the album he just released this year. He played every single instrument and he sang on it and he wrote every song. Kid has got incredible talent, but the gene pool was pretty good. For, for a forum you know he definitely uh, not that he didn't earn his chops Eddie will always be the, the king as far as I'm concerned
0: well two things one is you know the internet's given Wolfgang such a hard time stop giving him such a hard time he is a great yes singer songwriter he's out there doing it just like his dad did and people are giving him such a hard time that he's riding on the coattails of Eddie and all that kind of stuff Eddie was his dad his uncles and 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 they were you know popular too van halen was popular but he's doing his thing and you have to give him credit for that and he's not taking any I don't usually cuss on this show, but he's not taking any bullshit either.
1: Well, the one thing that he's got a lot of flack for, you mentioned it, where people think he's riding on his dad's coattails—that's the one problem he's had. The other one that I think is even a bigger issue: these people that are getting online saying, "When are you going to play your dad's music?" You know, I know he doesn't read all. the the comments but I I left a comment a while back during the summer when this first started for him hopefully other people have related as well if anybody because of me being a Hank Williams Jr. fan uh, anybody that knows anything about the history of Hank Williams Jr. well his daddy obviously was probably the biggest country star really up until well into after his passing I mean Hank Williams was like a legend Everybody that knows Hank Williams Jr. knows that they didn't skip a beat. As soon as that boy was old enough to pick up a guitar, they had him playing his daddy songs up until... He finally had enough. He faced a lot of backlash back when he decided, I'm going to start playing my own music now. I know Wolfgang's going to go through the same thing. You know, he's going to have people. He's actually took a very funny approach at times. He's he's cussed people out and said, I don't care what y'all say, I'm never going to play Panama at one of my concerts. And a lot of people, you know, get a good laugh out of it. But I know it it is bothering him a lot. He just needs to do his own thing. The biggest difference between, obviously, Hank Williams Jr. and Wolfgang is Hank Williams Jr. didn't have a whole slew of social media chomping at the bit you know every minute of the day whereas you know Wolfgang if he picks up his phone he's just seeing thousands of comments from people all over the world they just want to hear him play Eruption or something you know which I'm sure is weighs on him a lot because he just wants to make his music uh, hopefully he'll be fine he's got a great mom obviously hopefully he can stay grounded and keep making his music he's definitely a very talented young man singing chops are really what surprised me the most if you sit down and listen to his songs I mean the kid has got an incredible voice on him yeah, I always kind of wondered when he played with Roth and his dad, you know, back when they reunited, how he was going to hang. Cause Michael Anthony was always known for hitting those high notes. And now I know that they weren't piping in fake Michael Anthony lyrics like on top of him when he was playing with his dad, because he, you know, he can really sing. Of course that might've actually helped him when he toured with them to really get his vocals in order, but the kid can sing really good. So I think the future is going to be really bright for him to carry on the Van Halen name.
0: Yeah, he definitely did, you know, have some really good teachers to teach him uh, his, His uh, craft and what he knows. And he was on that uh, show when I went and saw him. Anthony, I think, is, you know, with Van Hagar, or, you know, Van Hagar, Sammy Hagar, playing with him, you know, doing Cabo. And I think they recently released an album together. They pal around a lot together, too. So I'm glad uh, Wolfgang's out there doing his own thing. And the other thing is with Van Halen, you know, a lot of times people will start with their favorites and just put their favorites on a playlist and whatever, whatever. Go back and listen to those albums. Go back and listen to, you know, uh, Van Halen 1 and 2 and and so forth and so on and go back and listen to the uh you know the sammy hagar era as well 51 50 eight one two and Foreign Law the of common knowledge get those albums listen to them don't just listen to the hits because there's a lot of gems in there that you need to listen to and that are surprising with van halen um and that have some really awesome songwriting and, and skills as uh, musicians as well Playing as a band,
1: yeah. I, I would say if anybody wanted to pick an obscure album, probably they don't really know Van Halen for it would be *Fair Warning*. Incredible album. That it had kind of a reputation for being a little dark. It's got *Mean Street*. He always talked about the brown sound with his guitar, like it was a certain sound. That album seems to me to to personify that more than anything. It's got an instrumental at the end called *Sunday Afternoon in the Park* that uh, kind of goes into. Michael and Anthony used to play some of it in his uh solo. Just a really really good album. Uh, Definitely, an album just to, to pop in one day and just listen to give a good
0: listen. It's it's really good. Yeah, definitely. You know, rediscover if you're doing anything, rediscover some of this old music. Just don't listen to your same hits all the time. Uh, rediscover um, some of these uh, artists that we're talking about.
1: No, I was just going to say that's the one only thing I, I will say with the new technology that I do like is like if you get an Apple subscription or a, a Spotify, you have the world at your fingertips. Anything you want to explore, you can just ask for it, pop it in and and play it. So if I had to say that's the one positive thing about the technology today is the world is at your fingertips. So yeah, get out there and explore some of that older music.
0: Definitely take advantage of it. All right. Well, we've been waiting all day. Are you ready? I'm ready. Here we go. (laughs) How has music impacted your life?
1: I would say it's one of the biggest aspects really of my life, honest. I know a lot of people if you had to lose a limb or something like that, and this is kinda of hard actually, but people over the years say, Well, if you lost your sight or your hearing, which which one would you go with? As horrible as it would be to be blind, I don't think I could if I lost my hearing, if something were to happen and I couldn't listen to music anymore. I'm not sure how I would really make it. So that it really does put things in perspective. Some people just kind of enjoy music. I know a lot of people that could live, don't care less about music. It's just kind of like there. They can listen to it. It's fine. But for me, music is, it's with me everywhere I go. Some people get in the car and just put it in drive and go. The first thing I do when I get in the car is pull up whatever playlist I feel like I want to listen to, whether it's six in the morning when I go to work or five in the afternoon when I come home. I listen to it when I shower. Everywhere, I mean, like, I feel like I can squeeze music in, I do it. For me, it's just a a huge aspect. You know, I have so many songs that attach myself to different times in my life. I always use the term Rain Man because I have this uncanny ability to attach events to songs. For me, it can be very nostalgic. It can be very therapeutic. For me, music really is an extremely important aspect of my life. And I, of course, I try to share it with as many people as I can. Daughters have both gotten a healthy dose of 70s and 80s over the years. I feel like I've made a pretty good impression with them musically. You know, we've gotten to the point now where I can listen to some of their music. I don't want to be a new music snob. There's definitely a healthy source of music that all of us can listen to together. That's really important to me to be able to share that with my family, just like my
0: dad did with me. Yeah, such a big thing. How is music impacted? And, you know, you you go back to your mom and your dad and, and your family, and that inspires your family. And I would just... I was just thinking while you were talking I was just thinking what uh, your girls have well they're young women uh, uh now almost uh what they've experienced uh, as far as their musical taste and when they put on a playlist it's probably like one of my kids when they get into the car and they put on uh something it's like what are they I wonder what they're going to put on and and every time I'm so impressed by what they put on
1: yeah absolutely. You know, we've shared new music over the years. As you and I both know, it's uh, certain aspects of the music industry that I don't really care for. Don't even want to mention certain artists. uh, The vulgarity and stuff I don't really have no use for. There's been enough music along the years, even new music, that we've gotten to enjoy together. And of course, they've appreciated a lot of the music that I like. It's really cool to be able to get in the car and just sing some tunes together. And uh, my daughter's oldest daughter's first concert was Van Halen when they came to Charlottesville you know, several years ago when they reunited with Dave Ross. That was a cool... Actually, I think back, that was in D.C. It was so so disappointing that we, we missed Cool the Gang because we got caught in traffic. Cool in the Gang actually opened up. To me, Cool the Gang was like a slam dunk opening act because they, they had like 10 songs that like I knew by heart, and I, I think we rolled in at the very last song with like Celebration or something, I was like, man, I can't believe we've missed Cool in the Gang. That was a cool experience taking her to her first concert, being a Van Halen concert. Yeah, definitely good memories. Did
0: you have anything else to add before we wrap it up for today?
1: No, I appreciate you having me on. Um, said I love music. Uh, anytime you want to get together, pick a topic or something, maybe just to go down and talk about uh, MTV or anything, you name it, I'm, I'm always glad to come back share my musical interest with you. know. Anytime you want to get together, just let me know, but I appreciate you having me on.
0: Well, thank Thank you so much, Chris. Thanks for going under the musical influence of today's guest, Chris Key, on Under the Influence with DJ Johnny Bravo. I want you to go under the uh, Instagram, DJ Johnny Bravo underscore Under the Influence. That's DJ J O N N I Bravo underscore Under the Influence. Please subscribe to Under the Influence with DJ Johnny Bravo wherever you listen to your podcast. I'm Johnny Bravo. I'll see you next time. Goodbye. Until next time.